I'm Josh Berkey, Vice President of Policy and Advocacy at U.S. Telecom, the Broadband Association, and Executive Director of the U.S. Telecom-led Industry Traceback Group, or ITG. Part of my day job is trying to stop illegal robocalls, working closely with the FCC and other federal and state authorities. Our work is focused on something, unwanted robocalls, people really hate more than anything else in the world. There is some good news on this dreadful topic. The industry has invested in caller ID authentication technology and blocking labeling protections for their customers, among many other things. These efforts are making it harder for illegal and unwanted robocalls to get through. Industry Traceback, the effort we lead through the ITG, is actively finding out where these calls are coming from every day. And there's more federal and state enforcement than there has ever been before, powered by the ITG's data, and we are seeing the impact of these efforts. On today's podcast, we have Loyon Egal. Loyon leads the FCC's Enforcement Bureau, the wing of the FCC responsible for enforcing the FCC's rules, including against illegal robocallers. Our discussion focuses on what is the FCC doing here and how is it working? I hope you enjoy our conversation. Loyang, welcome to the latest edition of Bites and Bandwidth and joining me to talk all things illegal robocalls, including how they impact the lives of consumers and businesses. So just to start a little bit about our robocall problem, according to UMail, there were 4.3 billion robocalls in September. And that's something I think folks hear complaints about as well. At the FCC, there's been over 2 million consumer complaints about the issue in the past eight years. Before we get into exactly what you at the FCC are doing to address the problem, I wanted to talk a little bit about the UMail data, what it means and doesn't mean. So of those 4.3 billion, UMail's categorization has about 20% as scams and 27% as telemarketing. The rest were robocalls that maybe people are expecting to receive, like notifications, payment reminders. But can you talk a little bit about what makes a given robocall more than just unwanted, but actually also illegal? Sure. And Josh, thank you very much for having me. Appreciate all the work that you guys do with us to help us protect the public and consumers from the scourge of robocalls. So to your question about what makes a robocall illegal, when we talk about robocalls, we're usually talking about calls that have been made with an auto dialer or an artificial or pre-recorded voice to someone's cell phone or their residential telephone line. For not all robocalls are legal. The TCPA only prohibits auto-dialed or pre-recorded voice messages that are made without the consent of the person receiving the call or are made without a, a reason involving some kind of emergency. The commission has adopted some discrete exceptions to that, such as calls that are made with regards to package delivery, companies, financial institutions, healthcare providers, as long as certain conditions are met. We encourage consumers to file complaints about any potential illegal calls with the FCC by going to FCC.gov forward slash complaints and explaining the issues that they are seeing. And this helps us with regards to our investigations. But we do like to distinguish between what are illegal robocalls and what are calls that people can receive. And If you think about it in real life circumstances, sometimes your pharmacy might call you or text you to let you that certain medicine is available for pickup. That necessarily would not be an illegal robocall, but something trying to trick you or have you provide personal information or someone trying to sell you something, knowing that you've asked not to receive those type of calls 
that would fall into the category of illegal. So about selling something with the robocall, you mentioned a key issue, which is consent. Even marketing robocalls can be legal with consent. And of that email data we talked about, that email estimates there's about a billion telemarketing robocalls every single month. You've got uh, about 332 million people in the country. How does that math work? Is it really the case that we've got that many people that consented to be getting telemarketing robocalls? I know I don't want them and I've not consented to them. So how are we seeing those numbers make sense? Yeah, not all of those callers have consented to those calls. You say the population in the United States is 332 million. Not everyone in 332 million have cellular phones. We have underage people. We have older people per se. So even the fact that the number is even smaller as far as the population that's receiving these calls than the actual population in the United States shows you the, the volume of the problem. But you add to that out of adults, I saw that there was Pew Research Center information from 2021 that said for adults in the United States, about 97% of adults have cellular phones and about 85% of those have smartphones. So with that type of technological penetration, the ability for people to reach you is unprecedented at any time in our history. So again, what we look at are those calls that are illegal, those that have not had received consent. And sometimes consent can be fake or the caller can just decide to call regardless of whether or not you've consented to that call. Another way people receive calls for which they are not intending to receive those type of calls is when consumers unwittingly provide consent. Sometimes consumers will, in the course of signing up for something online or, or purchasing something, consent to receive uh, pre-recorded voice messages from a particular entity, as well as that entity's marketing partners. And those marketing partners may include thousands of companies, and, uh, and a consumer will not know this unless they pay really close attention to the small details in the words. And so that, in many instances, results in people receiving calls that they may not have consented to, but by making a purchase or signing up for something online, have inadvertently provided consent. And that's something that's definitely come up in some of the FCC's enforcement cases. And to dig into the work you're doing, one of the signatures that has been your approach at the FCC and in the robocall enforcement under your leadership is really targeting specific campaigns. I think the first big news was the auto warranty robocalls that were incredibly prolific at early last year, and now they aren't. Under your leadership, the FCC has also targeted student loans and mortgage scams. Can you talk a little bit about why the FCC is taking that approach, why the Enforcement Bureau is taking that approach, and whether it's been working? So this harkens back to my background being a, a former federal prosecutor and how I view approaching large-scale issues, knowing that resources are limited and you want to be able to direct and allocate those resources to be able to have the biggest impact you can. The approach we decided, as you mentioned, was to look at these issues categorically and be able to assess who are the biggest purveyors of certain categories of illegal robocalls. Fortunately, your technology and your assistance at the ITG is, uh, can help us categorize calls by campaigns and the type of calls that are targeting people. And so we did this with regards to, as you mentioned last year, the auto warranty calls, which I believe were top five of the types of robocalls that people complained about the most. 
And we identified a group of companies and individuals that were behind a substantial amount of those calls. So we targeted our enforcement authorities and resources and investigative partnerships towards the purveyors of those uh, auto warranty calls. And as you mentioned, we, we were very successful working with our partners at the state attorney general's office in Ohio, and also with the ITG and the communication sector. And we were able to see a result of approximately 99% drop in those type of calls. Once we saw the type of success we were having there, we then expanded it and approached it with regards to student loans, predatory mortgages, and saw similar types of success. And that's really, I think, a great story here. Just seeing that impact, seeing that the disruption that enforcement combined with the industry effort can have. In your purview, there, the FCC is targeting two types of entities. Sometimes it's the callers, sometimes it's the voice service providers. And one of the new tools in the FCC's enforcement arsenal is referred to as a K-4 notice. Can you talk a little bit about what that is, what the process is to issue one, and why does it have an impact? The K-4, we, we, I like to refer to it as, as part of our injunctive enforcement tools that we can use amongst the other tools. Mostly, we, we can go after people and, and find them for, uh, for violations of federal statutes and, and federal regulations. But the K-4 allowed us the injunctive type of authority to basically give the industry the ability to take action against identified bad actors with the understanding that in taking those actions, they had the imprimatur and approval of the Enforcement Bureau. And so the way the K-4N works is that we would issue our cease and desist letters to the target, informing that target that they've been identified as facilitating bad illegal robocalls, and that if they don't take action uh, within a certain period of time, we will follow up. We would then issue the K-4 simultaneously as when we issued that cease and desist letter to the entire, we would do a public notice so that the entire communication sector was aware that we were issuing the cease and desist letter. And depending on the response or lack of response from the target, we would then take the next steps. And that is what we ended up doing in the first instance with the auto warranty calls last year. And that was where we saw the significant drop in calls. And that's really great. I, that's, I think, a creative new tool and being used effectively. And in the theme of new tools and, and effective use, one of the bits of news that the FCC made in the enforcement space recently was a notice threatening to remove 20 voice service providers from the agency's robocall mitigation database. Can you talk about that? And why does it matter if a provider is in that database? So this is the, the second tranche that uh, of these type of enforcement actions that we've taken where we've initiated the process of removing entities from the commission's robocall mitigation database or what we refer to as the RMD. The commission's rules require all voice service providers to certify that they are stir shaken compliant with regards to having implemented those requirements. In addition, voice service providers that have not fully implemented and gateway providers must include a filing of their mitigation. In other words, how are they going to approach and what system are they going to have in place to ensure that they are helping 
mitigate the facilitation of these type of calls. If they are not being consistent with those rules, the Bureau may remove the party from the robocall mitigation database. If the mitigation plan does not sufficiently describe the reasonable steps that the provider is going to take to mitigate legal calls. In addition, we have seen instances where entities have provided either no plan or very insufficient mitigation plan. And so in response to that, we issued these show cause orders informing these entities that they need to provide us with reasonable explanations about how they're going to address these deficiencies. And with regards to the ones that we just issued, the 20, those entities have until Monday, October 30th to explain to the commission why they should not be removed from the database. One thing you mentioned is the work we do together, the work of the industry with the FCC and specifically the effort I lead, the industry traceback group, tra- tracing back the legal robocalls. I, our view, we think it's been a fantastic partnership. We've been proud to support your work and that of your federal and state colleagues. But one of the questions I wanted to ask is, how do you dig into the traceback data? How do you use it as part of your mission in enforcing against the legal robocallers? Working with the ITG has been exemplary example of how the public-private partnership can work together to tackle big problems. The ITG, you guys play a very critical role in our work. You allow us first to be able to rapidly trace back the calls to identify the sources of these suspected illegal calls in a few days. In the past, it took weeks, months. It took a lot of process for us to be able to identify who were the critical entities that were behind those calls. And that's been reduced to a number of days. So that that is a significant impact of the relationship that we've had with you. Second, the, the traceback data allows us to identify the bad actor voice service providers that are acting as either gateways, meaning the entities that are bringing international calls into the United States that are targeting American consumers in the U.S. or originating providers of suspected illegal calls, meaning they're the ones themselves who are originating the bad calls. And third, because the ITG maintains a database of all the tracebacks that it's conducted, we're able to follow important trends in the robocalls. That is what allows us to identify prospectively where we should be focusing our resources and where, as I mentioned before, where can we do the next categorical enforcement engagement to be able to help reduce the volume of these calls. I appreciate the kind words, and we're, we're proud to continue to partner with you and your the other agencies and support your efforts. Unsurprisingly, given your role, we've talked about enforcement, but that's just one aspect of the FCC's fight against illegal robocalls. One of the things that FCC Chairwoman Rosenworcel has done is establish a robocall response team to pull together the different parts of the agency that have different expertise and work on the issue together. How has that helped your enforcement work and how have you brought the enforcement expertise that you and your team have to the other agency efforts as part of the robocall response team? It gives us the ability to collaborate and coordinate across the agency in a focused manner, right? This is a top priority for the chairwoman. It's the number one consumer complaint issue that the commission receives feedback from the American public about. And so bringing to bear the entire resources, expertise, skills of 
the commission across the rulemaking bureaus and offices, as well as us in the enforcement bureau, allows us to leverage people with enforcement expertise, engineering expertise, policy, economics, and it allows us to then from an enforcement perspective, take that information, take that background skill set, and then focus it in a targeted way. It also allows us to assess and identify emerging trends that we're seeing with regards to how bad actors are deploying these kind of campaigns against consumers and helps us to, again, as I said, focus our enforcement authorities. But then some of the instances where we're developing information as part of our investigations we're then able to then share that with our policy rulemaking colleagues and assist them with regards to rulemaking and regulations that might better address the issues. The back and forth dialogue, engagement, coordination allows us to better serve the American people. That's wonderful to hear just the coordination within the FCC. But the FCC is not the only entity that's interested in this issue. It's not only a top complaint at the FCC, it's a top complaint at the FTC, it's a top complaint at every state. So there's obviously interest across the government in addressing illegal robocalls. And then beyond that, it's a network and not all these calls come from the United States. Some of them come from abroad. So can you talk a little bit about how you and your team have coordinated, not just within the the agency as you have, but also with peers in the states and internationally as well? Yeah, this is a whole of government, whole of international government's approach to this issue, given the scale that we're talking about. And we work very closely with our partners at the federal level. We work closely with the Federal Trade Commission. We have a memorandum of understanding with the Federal Trade Commission on consumer protection-related issues. We work closely with the Department of Justice, the Consumer Protection Branch, and, and various other parts of the Department of Justice. And then we work closely with our friends at the state attorney's general offices. And, and there we entered into approximately 47 now memoranda of understanding with 47 states and territories, in the District of Columbia. These agreements with our state partners allow the uh, Enforcement Bureau and its counterparts to facilitate information sharing and investigative cooperation more easily. And an example of that is the auto warranty case that we mentioned. We had an MOU with the Ohio Attorney General's office, we coordinated with that office on that case. And when we brought our K-4 injunctive enforcement action, simultaneously, the Ohio Attorney General brought a lawsuit against many of the same entities that we were targeting and brought a federal lawsuit under the TCPA, the Telecommunication Consumer Protection Act. And so that was a prime example of how working with our partners had a profound impact. The other area that we're focused on in coordination is with our international partners and counterparts. And we've worked closely with our partners in, for example, Canada, uh, the United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, Ireland. And we've worked with them in our individual capacity whether we've entered into memorandum of understanding with a specific counterpart in, in Canada or Australia. And then we've worked with them collectively through what's called USENET, which stands for the Unsolicited Communications Enforcement Network. And what that is allows us to do is to promote cross-border collaboration 
many of the calls that are targeting U.S. consumers are coming from overseas. There may be common targets that we can work on and share information about. And we think that is going to be a very productive relationship for us going forward. That that really is an encouraging sign. And one of the things I recently testified before Congress, and one of the challenges I told the members of Congress was that sometimes on the other end of this, we're dealing with criminals. We're dealing with organized crime, often not in the U.S. These bad actors adapt as quickly as we do. Not only that, in some of the more prolific robocall telemarketing campaigns, we've I think we've seen aliases, different entities, shell companies that pop up and close down as quickly as you or the ITG is focused on them. So one of the questions I have is just how do we stay ahead of these tactics? What's changing and and how does the FCC and how should the industry be staying ahead of these changes? I think the way we do that is we continue to build on the positive work that we've been doing with the understanding that we can do more. And more means thinking about these things and approaching these issues creatively, using novel approaches, using approaches that maybe are not traditional for purposes of the FCC, but maybe traditional in you know the criminal context or the white collar anti-fraud context, which is, as I said, my background as a former prosecutor, taking a lot of those experiences and seeing if we can apply those in these regulatory settings. And when I say that, we're able to work closely with you and the industry to be able to trace these calls and find out who's behind these calls. I think the next level is going to be trying to identify the businesses and the financial infrastructure that supports these entities and individuals to be able to target people and try to defraud them or harass them. And then how they use those businesses and financial infrastructure to then exfiltrate the money that they take from people through scams. And for us, that means sharing financial information relevant to the bad actors that are under investigation. So that means being able to look at financial records, bank records, whether we have those records, whether our partners have those, and being able to then identify their assets, where they keep those assets. And when we bring these record-breaking fines, being able to then rebut any arguments they may make that they have an inability to pay because they've moved their assets around. We're working closely with our friends at the Treasury Department, specifically the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network under the Treasury Department, to be able to get access to certain information that the Treasury Department has for purposes of combating money laundering and illegal activity, things of that nature. And we think that will be an area that we can focus on. We're also working with the industry to better understand scam text and the ecosystem related to illegal robo-text and how those texts are then targeting consumers. We think that there's a through line and a connection between the work that we're doing in the privacy data protection side of the house to ensure that companies are protecting sensitive data, but also if and when breaches occur and, and data is compromised how potentially that data is then being used to target people through their phones, whether through voice communications or through text messages. And then lastly, uh, just last week, the chairwoman announced a proposed inquiry into how potentially artificial intelligence impacts illegal and unwanted robocalls and texts. And in that 
proposed inquiry, the uh, commission would focus on evaluating the threat of artificial intelligence, what tools may be available to counteract those threats, but also how artificial intelligence could potentially be used to combat illegal robocalls and scam texts. Shifting from where we are today, and I think your discussion of AI and then that the FCC's notice of inquiry is, is a perfect segue. Let's talk about the future a little bit. And I want to throw some rapid questions at you and get your predictions as we near the time where we have to let you get back to stopping the bad guys. So what can we expect in terms of scam robocall volume in one year? Roughly in the last year, we've seen about a, a more than 20% drop in robocalls generally. So we're going to continue to do that work. It's not an overnight solution. It's going to con- it's going to require continued hard work focus in driving down the volume of those calls. But we're also, I think we're going to see and have seen and will continue to see a shift from robocalls to high volume type of calls to the low volume ones that are targeting people. And again, I think that's where you're going to see the connection between potential compromised information and getting bad actors, getting a return on their investment by doing low volume targeted calls, but having access to people's sensitive data to be able to trick people. All right. So that's one trend. What other future technologies, future trends do you see will make these problems better? Will it make them worse? And I just mentioned AI and the commission is going to engage, as the chairwoman mentioned, in an inquiry to better understand what that means. Everybody's looking at AI across the board. What does it mean for our society generally? And I think we would be remiss if we weren't looking at it for purposes of how it can potentially be used nefariously by bad actors and threat actors. So I think getting a better understanding of how that technology may be used against people, I think will will position us to to be able to identify where things are. In addition, with the text messages, as I said, I think we're seeing a, a shift from voice calls to text messages because text messages, people are inclined to, they've been so trained and, and, and so aware of what to look for with regards to calls with text messages. People receive some text messages sometimes and, and if they mm-hmm. look, it's coming from your bank or, or someone you trust are maybe inclined to engage through the text message ecosystem. So I think that's an area that we're also looking to be able to to focus our resources on. All right. And before we let you go, so we talked about robocalls, we talked about robotechs, but those are a priority for the FCC, both on the policy and enforcement front, but that's just one of many issues before the agency. What other areas should FCC observers be on the lookout for that have the eye of the FCC's enforcement bureau? The chairwoman announced this summer the creation of the Privacy and Data Protection Task Force, which the Enforcement Bureau leads that task force. I think that sends a signal as to the importance that the commission places on the protection of sensitive data. Again, if 97% of adults in the United States have cellular phones and 85% of those have smartphones, that is a treasure trove of data that is being generated on a daily basis. So making sure that the privacy people are able to secure their privacy and be able to secure their sensitive data is definitely an enforcement priority for us. In addition, I think the commission has gotten more and more national security responsibilities assigned to it through Congress. And from an enforcement perspective, I think making sure that entities that have access to FCC licenses and FCC authorizations 
ensuring that those entities, specifically those that involve a portion of foreign investment, that those uh, go through the right and appropriate vetting processes that have been set up to ensure that national security risk and law enforcement risk have been identified, assessed, and addressed. So that is another uh, important area for the Enforcement Bureau. And then lastly, there's multi-billion dollar programs that the FCC is, is administering the, in addition to the Universal Service Fund. So making sure the integrity of those programs are protected, protecting those programs from fraud, waste, and abuse is another priority. And recently, not to say that we're going to have a volume of these, but we just uh, recently announced a consent decree that we entered into with a satellite company with regards to orbital debris. And so the creation of the Space Bureau at the commission, that is another area that we will be looking at. So plenty to watch for and plenty to be active on. Thank you, Loya, for joining us today for a great conversation. We really do thank the FCC and you for our partnership together on these important efforts and for all the work you're doing to protect people from illegal robocalls. So thank you very thank much. Thank you, Josh. And thank you for all your help. Appreciate it. Thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of Bites and Bandwidth. Join us each month as we continue our conversation with key voices in the U.S. broadband industry. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. For more information on U.S. Telecom, visit us online at ustelecom.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.